To start us out, I'm going to read Psalm 116. Um, I don't know how the best you engage with the Bible study, but if, if having the Bible open and in your lap, in your lap sometimes can be distracting, why don't, you, why don't you just take this time to listen? I'm going to read this psalm so as to set the tone of today's sermon. And you can just receive it, let it wash over you. If it's helpful for you to read along, please do so. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version this morning. Psalm 116 says, I love Yahweh because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surround me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of Yahweh. O Yahweh, I implore you to deliver my soul. Gracious is Yahweh and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. Yahweh preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul for Yahweh has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to Yahweh for his benefits toward me? I will take up the cup of salvation. I will call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to Yahweh. Now in the presence of all his people, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of his saints. O Yahweh, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to Yahweh. Now in the presence of all his people and the courts of Yahweh's house. In the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise Yahweh. Psalm 116. In the beginning, in in the book of Genesis chapter 1, God reveals through his word that he created man and woman in his image. In his image, male and female, God created them. Now, what that meant is on earth, amidst the plants, the animals, the fruits, the flowers, everything that grew in this world, it was up to the man and the woman, Adam and the woman who had come to be named Eve, to represent God, to be like him in his kindness, in his responsibility, in his provision, in his protection, in his nurturing. All the very, very, very good qualities of God were encumbered upon these people to represent this in perfection. Now, because God created them perfectly, they were able to do this. And we don't know for how long, but in this world, they stood here in the image of God, representing a tower of greatness and doing so faithfully and perfectly in such a way where everything in the world was in peace. The Jewish word for peace is the word shalom, which is probably um, more better understood as harmony, where everything, all that is and all that exists is as it should be, humming together in a melodic harmony of 
beautiful, gushing peace. And that sustained for a little while. We're not sure how long, but as you guys well know, Adam and the woman who had become named Eve transgressed God's law, and for their troubles, in return, they received for their sin shame and death. At that point, their ability to represent God on the world shattered. Where the God whom they were supposed to represent was glorious and eternal, they were now ashamed and mortal. A huge disappointment, a major letdown, and a big failure. A massive weakness. Fast forward through the histories to today. Today, we all go about our busy lives scurrying from one place to the next, from job to hobby, back to sleep, to job to hobby, to binge watching on Netflix, to job to hobby, to job, job, and then you work sometimes on the weekends. And in the midst of all of that, we, we feel this immense amount of pressure to achieve. We're always striving, always trying to attain some form of greatness, like we're climbing an uphill slope that's finished with linoleum and we got motor oil on our shoes, constantly slipping backwards. It's because we're always trying to be something greater than we are. And we become easily ashamed of our failures, easily wanting to separate ourselves from our weaknesses. And we come up with, uh, you know, I beg your pardon, but we come up with cliches that say that failures are really just stepping stones towards success. But we don't really feel that way because if we did, our resumes would look different when we're applying for jobs, right? It, it makes us feel better when we say things like that, but in, in honesty, deep down in our hearts, failures, weaknesses, they hurt us. Now, I wonder... I wonder if the reason we're so discouraged when we're coming to terms with our weakness is because deep down in the very fabric of our natures, deep down in the very beings of who we are, still flickers this original assignment for God. That we're supposed to be here as God's image bearers, to represent God in perfection in this world. And because that still flickers within us, we want to be something great. We want to stand here on this earth and have a lasting impression and leave behind a legacy, be a tower of greatness, but this greatness we just aren't. We're made in the image of God still. We have the appearance of God still, but we perform like humans. And the contradiction is devastating to us. This morning, we are finishing the sermon series entitled The Shape of Ministry, and it's a portion of 2 Corinthians where we're gathering from Paul's example, what is it that we're supposed to do on this earth as we minister as disciples of Jesus Christ? And in some ways, to tie this to our intro, how is it that we can be the image of God in this world? For this last installment, the sermon is called Life Out of Death. The purpose of this sermon, as found in the Word, is to dethrone this idea that you have to be perfect in order to bear your ministry well. That you need to 
Minimalize your shames. Put them behind you. Hide your weaknesses. You know, cover up your failures. That's not true. And we'll see why. This sermon's going to follow the life of the Apostle Paul. And the life of the Apostle Paul is one where clearly he understood that he didn't have to hide his weaknesses. He didn't have to hide his vulnerabilities. But instead, he let them show. He saw them as a public display with an intention. He saw them that way because he understood that as long as his mortality, as long as his weaknesses were on display, it would provide an opportunity for the gospel of salvation to come forth, which would then tell people how they may be saved, which may then invite people into the eternal life that only Jesus Christ offers, and then his ministry, if you will, would be confirmed. This is what Paul wanted to do. Now, Paul didn't have a shortness of weaknesses in his person. Uh, He was a very unimpressive-looking guy. Um, Even though he had a wonderful mind, apparently he wasn't verbally very eloquent. And so towards the end of 2 Corinthians, we'll see that his critics were calling him ugly and a bad communicator. And uh, John MacArthur says, he goes, uh, what they, (laughs) they were basically telling him, he doesn't look good, and if he, if, he look, if he didn't look good, but he could at least talk to you well, then you could respect him, but he doesn't look good, and he can't talk to you well, so what's the deal? Why are you guys even listening to this guy? But in addition to his just normal physical weaknesses and the unimpressive nature of his character, he also lived a life that was heavily shameful, constantly being persecuted, imprisoned, beaten. There was an occasion of his life where he was pummeled with stones until they at least understood he was dead. He probably did die. And by God's grace, he was brought back. Now, we understand that persecution is a beautiful thing, but try to step outside of the romanticism of persecution and understand that in Paul's day, it was more akin to medieval times being put in the stocks in the public square. He was seen as an image of shame. And so critics raised up, and they said, you know, it's unbecoming of a servant of God to live a life of such destitution, of such weakness and desperation and shame and pain and failure like Paul's. And you know what? Some of the people in the Corinthian church were, were buying into that and were saying, like, yeah. Like, if we have an almighty God, why is our pastor, our planting missionary, so weak and so ashamed? And 2 Corinthians 4 is Paul's response to that. So turn with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 7 through 15. I'll give you a second to turn there, and I'll read it out loud. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power of God may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed, and therefore I spoke, 
we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. The word of the Lord. Now let's pray. Jesus, as far as shame goes, yours was was put on display for everybody. Despite you didn't deserve the consequences for any sin because you were sinless, you were dragged out into the public square, humiliated, beaten, vastly reduced beneath what you deserve, lashed, mocked, punched, spat upon, and hanged upon a cross. Jesus, you know weakness. You, you permitted weakness to be upon you, although you are the all-powerful God. And you did so for the sake that some may be saved. And I just pray that this morning that your salvation would would be available to all of us, that we would come to know the great, wonderful privilege and grace that we have in your redemption. Please bless this time. Please be present. Holy Spirit, please move in this place. Father, be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 7 through 10. Um, a theologian named Duff said that he thinks that in verses 7 through 10, Paul is drawing imagery from a common kind of festival that was uh, practiced in the pagan world, especially in Greece. Remember, Corinth is a prominent city in Greece. And it was a kind of festival that was called an epiphany procession. The the Universal Catholic Church today has something called an epiphany procession, but that's not what we're talking about. Set that aside. An epiphany procession was a, a parade where priests of a certain deity would gather up all of the holy relics of you know, their belief system, and they would parade them through the streets. They would grab these relics, and they would put them in you know, some, some form of jar and have this long parade. The idea was to celebrate the epiphany, meaning when this deity, when this idol, when this god revealed himself to the planet. And they would say, see, we have these relics that testify to the majesty of Dionysus or Zeus or so on and so forth. The plan to doing this was not only a praise offering to their God, but it was also meant to impress the crowd that surrounded and maybe convert some people. It was an evangelism tool, if you will. And they would do this regularly. Over time, these epiphany processions began to escalate, as everything kind of does, and they would begin to decorate these jars, and these jars themselves became ornate and ornamented, have beautiful inlays and designs, so that way not only the thing inside of the jars, the relics themselves, but even the jars were beautified with pomp and circumstance for the onlookers to be impressed and maybe convert. Now, if you think about that kind of practice, then maybe Duff is right. I'll read verses 7 through 10 again and see if you can maybe pick up on some of the imagery that maybe Paul is alluding to. 
But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God may, or the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. So unlike these epiphany processions, where these priests would carry these relics in in beautifully ornamented, fashioned, and designed jars, Paul says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or as referred to in verse six, the light of the knowledge of God by the face of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation, is not carried around in these big, fancy, impressive vessels, just earthen vessels, or clay jars. To understand the metaphor, first, place this piece. Paul is saying that he and his ministry team are just earthen vessels, just run-in-the-mill, ordinary clay jars. And clay jars imply two things. One, frailty, so like uh, they're, they're brittle, they fall apart, they break. In the book of Leviticus, if, you, uh, if one of your clay jars becomes unclean, there's no way to fix it, just smash it and destroy it. So they're, they're brittle and fragile and frail. Secondly, they're very common. They're not decorated. These are everyday kinds of vessels. It would be the first century equivalent of uh, a wax paper cup, and not even the good kind with the flowers, like the ones with the folds on them that you get at the dentist, those kinds. And uh, I brought something. While While I was preparing for this sermon, I was washing the dishes, And this fell off of a less than three-foot counter onto a shock-absorbent laminate flooring and shattered. Uh, This is called a ramekin. I know that because I'm married. By the way, honey, I broke this. Um, I I never use props during sermons. However, this seemed far too providential to not bring. I I was dwelling upon this passage, upon the frailty of earthen vessels, and then in the midst, while I was listening to a sermon on the passage, this fell and shattered. I brought something. On Friday, while I was preparing for this sermon, I was washing dishes, and this shattered in my hands and and cut up my fingers. By the way, Justin, I broke this. Um, And I never used props, but it seemed far too providential, so I brought this. What Paul is saying is the design of ministry itself is to be given by people who are frail, brittle, and breakable. Pathetic, unimpressive, undecorated. Now why? Why is that? Is that just an allowance? That even, is, is that saying that even weak people are welcomed into the kingdom of God and share the gospel? Maybe. But I think it's more than just an allowance. Because the second half of verse 7 says that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Because there's a contradiction. There's this 
there's this weird dissonance between the weakness of Paul and his team and the gospel that they proclaim. It just, they don't, they don't work well with each other. You hear this, this gospel of, of great power coming forth from this person who is brittle and frail and would shatter if he fell off of less than a three-foot counter. It's, I think it's a little bit like this. Have you ever seen a commercial that's advertising arthritis medication? Have you ever seen one of those? Who, who are the actors and actresses in those commercials? They're always the elderly. I, I don't know why. Like, I mean, people, young people suffer from arthritis as well, but I think, the, I think the reason that they do that is because they want you to see somebody who you would assume is, is frail and unable to do these things. And at the end of the commercial, when, when the elderly woman is doing ballet or the elderly man is doing CrossFit, you're like, oh, wow, there must be something powerful working inside him. And they're like, yeah, it's this pill. Get it. I think that what Paul is saying is that the gospel is similar to that. That when people look at Paul's life, they're supposed to see how shameful he is. They're supposed to see how frail he is. So that way they have to think there's, there must be something powerful working inside of him. Verses 8 and 9 are a few couplets where Paul is talking about this kind of resilience that he's displayed despite appearances. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. He says, there's this really weird resilience about me and my ministry team. Because everybody knows that every city I enter, I'm beaten, I'm tortured, I'm imprisoned, I'm pummeled with stones, and yet I keep on swinging. I rally back. If you continue, if you grab with you the image of an earthen vessel, verse 8 says, I'm hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. If you step on a clay pot and you apply any point, any form of force or weight upon it, it shatters, it destroys, and it cannot be repaired. I, I read that in the first century that people would oftentimes repair glass that shatters because as long as you collect all the pieces, in the very least you can melt them back down and reform them to something else. But clay, when it's burnt in a kiln, it's, it's done. You can never repair it. So if you would hard press and apply pressure on the side of every single vessel, on every side of a vessel, it would crush. And Paul says, I have been hard-pressed everywhere I go, but I've not been crushed. I'm still here proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Then he says, we're perplexed, but not in despair. That means confused, but not, um, not depressed by that confusion. We're not, we're not giving up. Actually, in the Greek, the perplexed and despair are, are effectively the same word. I think an English equivalent that would be good for that is, we are at a loss, but we're never lost. Sometimes Paul and his team were faced up against obstacles that they, as far as they knew, they could not beat. They didn't know where to go, but they knew that they weren't lost. They knew that God knew exactly where they were and would find them on their way out persecuted but not forsaken. Paul said, yes, I have been imprisoned. I have been beaten for the proclamation for the good news of the gospel. However, that does not mean that God has left me to die. 
It does bring me to the image of when Paul was, was stoned outside of the city and people left him because they thought he was dead, but he got back up and continued on his ministry, maybe because God raised him from the dead. Struck down, but not destroyed. Struck down, or your translation may say cast down, it means, uh, it means an active aggressive, throwing something at the ground. And the word destroyed means rendered useless. Again, take this image of a clay pot. If you throw one at the ground, it will break, and it would be rendered useless. You can't even fix it. Paul says many times we have been cast down, many times we have been struck down, thrown to the floor, and yet our usefulness remains. We have this dissonant resilience that makes no sense to anybody. Why? Verses 11 and 12. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, So then death is working in us, but life in you. Imagine again, if you will, um, a Greek artifact that on the outside artistically depicts uh, a portion of some form of God's mythology. This is, I don't know, uh, this is Perseus stabbing someone in the neck. You know, it's like this is just a frozen image of this portion of the mythology. Paul says, my body is kind of like that. The the outside of my body is decorated in in a sort of way that depicts a certain portion of Jesus' gospel. And it's this portion of it. Jesus is dying. It's not the whole story, but an important part of the story is that Jesus died. And Paul says, as I walk around, with some scars of old wounds, bumps and bruises, and fresh wounds of of recent assaults. On my body, I depict the shame and weakness that Jesus bore willingly. But in addition to that, because I continue to walk around, I also depict something very important. It's that there is life in Christ. Jesus did not only endure shame and weakness in his beatings on his way to the cross, he also showed power in his resilience. Now, Paul just survived his beatings, but Jesus died and rose again three days later. And as Paul walks around with black eyes, cuts, and sores, Jesus walked around with three-day-old impalement wounds in his hands, feet, and side. And Paul says, visibly, physically, I artistically depict these two truths of the gospel, Jesus' dying as well as Jesus' life. Why? Death is working in us, but life in you. This is a parade. I'm walking around to testify to the majesty that is my God. And the majesty that is my God is not just relics inside of fancily decorated vases. The majesty of my God is shame, sustained wounds, and yet resilience and resurrection, a life abundantly. Paul says, I'm parading this through that you may see a physical picture and maybe be impressed by my God and may be converted. So yes, death is working in me. Yes, I've taken a few hits. But when you see it, it gives me an opportunity to tell you what this means about my God and maybe 
Maybe life is working in you because I get the opportunity to share with you the gospel. Now, if verses 7 through 10 were citing the imagery of an epiphany procession, that would be for the benefit of the former pagans, the Gentiles in the Corinthian church, right? But we know that there's, there were two major demographics in the Corinthian church, the Gentiles as well as there were what? Yeah, there were also Jewish people. So if, if that was imagery, possibly for the benefit of the Gentiles, verses 13 and 14 I think is imagery for the Jewish people in the church. He says, and since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. We'll go ahead and throw 15 on there too, just for extra kicks. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Paul briefly cites there Psalm 116. That's the psalm that we read before we started our our main sermon, Psalm 116. And Psalm 116 is not an obscure portion of scripture. We may not know it very well, but it was very, very regularly utilized by the Jewish people. It was a Hallel psalm. Hallel psalms were a prominent part of the Passover Seder, according to um, an, an, an order of traditions called a, the, a Haggadah. And actually, an interesting fact, Jesus sang this psalm the night he was betrayed. Because that's what everybody does, every Passover. They sing Psalms 13, 113 through Psalms 118, which includes 116. Psalms 113 through 118 are the Hallel Psalms, and Psalms 113 to 115 are really straightforward praise songs. They're like, God's brought us out of Egypt, you know, so praise the Lord. God has, you know, set us into this kingdom, so praise the Lord, so praise the Lord. They're, they're all of these very jovial, joyful praise songs. And then at 116, things take a buzzkill. Things take a strange turn. Because as, as we read before service, Psalm 116 is kind of a lament. It is still a praise song because he's saying, God, I've been through these things. But the vast majority of the time, he's saying, I've been hard-pressed. I've been afflicted. I've been desperate. I believed, and so therefore I spoke. In my haste, I said that all men are liars It's a psalm of realization, the weakness and the depravity and the the pain that a human being goes to. In that psalm, the psalmist reflects on the various things he's been through and then says, how can I repay my God for saving me from all of these things? And he answers it. He says, well, I will, I will make vows to the Lord. I will make a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I will do it in the presence of his holy people. O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. So it's, it's this big case of a, what a miserable life the psalmist has lived. It's a testimony of how God has saved him. And then he says, it ends with a question and answer. What should I do to repay God? Well, I will publicly make vows to the Lord and thanksgiving to the Lord. One more thing about that in order to really hammer it home. The Thanksgiving offering 
was an offering. I'll give you the cliff notes of it. If, if you want some more information on this, listen to the peace offering sermon from last July in the sacrifices sermon series. I kind of unpack this some more. The peace offering, when it was qualified by vows and thanksgivings, involved an entire animal that was to be sacrificed, killed for the Lord, and then a lot of pastries, breads and cakes that were supposed to be made as well. And only a small portion of that animal, only a small select portion of those pastries were given to God and to the priests. So you had a lot of food left over. And there was a, there was a command that said, you have to eat this in one day, or two days at the latest, but on the third day you have to burn everything that remains. So if you have a huge animal and a bunch of pastries and only two days to eat it, it means you're bringing along some friends. And so this Thanksgiving offering, which was the capstone of any, any sin offering and any time that you're bringing sacrifices to the Lord, it was a great opportunity where you bring your friends and you say, we're celebrating together that my God has forgiven my sins, that God has covered my iniquities, that God has atoned for my weaknesses, and now I stand in this place of, of redemption before the Lord, come celebrate with me. It was a communal event I think what Paul is saying here is to my Jewish listeners, I am weak according to Psalm 116. Is he saying I've given up my very body as a thanksgiving offering to the Lord that you guys may partake, join in with me and celebrate in the forgiveness and redemption that I've received by the graces of God? I kind of think that is what he's saying. I kind of think that what Paul is saying is I display my weaknesses, the dying in my flesh before you, Jewish audience, then you may partake in this and know what my God has done. It's not too far from when Jesus told his apostles that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Paul is saying that my, my very life is an offering to you guys. You guys know I'm weak. I don't hide my death from you. So that way you can join in for it. This is actually a celebration of thanksgiving to a God who's already saved me. It should be qualified and said that the thanksgiving offering, according to Leviticus 3 and 7, has no atoning ceremonial principles to it at all. There's the sin offering, there's the burnt offering, there's the, you know, all these things prior to that. But the thanksgiving offering is just recognition that God has already forgiven And so, we here stand before each other as people who are on the other side of redemption. And we have the opportunity to testify the majesty that is our God. How are we going to do it? Now, in our flesh, we, we honestly think that if we portray ourselves as these perfect, great, mighty towers of perfection, confidence, affluence, that it's going to say, it's going to tell people that the God that we worship, it must be great. But that's just a trick of the flesh. That's just our bodies trying to satisfy that tiny flicker within us, but we'll never be able to satisfy that. The thing is, on the outside, it looks like this is all bad news. It looks like what the Bible is telling us is that you are flawed, you're never going to be good at anything, and so just be 
satisfied in being trash. That doesn't sound like good news because that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying this. There is resurrection promised for God's church. Jesus has opened resurrection, glory, and redemption for every single buddy, and only the weak may apply. So, so often we can, we can portray uh, Christianity, whatever that means, to be this thing where you have to brush up, clean yourself up before you can come to God and then maybe he'll let you in the club. But Jesus likened himself to a physician, right? Physicians don't, aren't much use around the healthy. There, yeah, I wanna bring this up. There, there's a book that C.S. Lewis wrote called Till We Have Faces, and he says it's his, the best book he's ever written, and a lot of people agree with that. There's a portion where one of the main characters is describing what it felt like to be in the presence of gods, and she tells her older sister, she said, I felt ashamed, and her older sister says, why did you feel ashamed? You weren't naked or anything, and she said, no, not like that. I felt ashamed to look like a mortal, to be mortal, Her sister says, well, how can you help that? And her response is, I think we're always ashamed of things that we can't help. That portion of the book always stood out to me because you know what? When it's all said and done, the very things that I'm ashamed of are tied up to the mere fact that I'm immortal, that I I have this desire, this flicker within me to be perfect, to be this great tower that I am just not, that I have this image of God to bear, and yet the performance record of a human and I'm always failing. So what do we do? We hide our shames, we hide our failures, or we repurpose them and say they're just steps towards success. But God says, no, give me your failures. I will bear them upon myself, my own shame, and I'll bring you along for the ride because on the other side is resurrection and glorification and life. Jesus is a savior. Jesus is a savior. Wherever you are in your life, in the worst places, he can save you. But there's a really, really important title that we give Jesus that I really want to hammer home today. It's this. Jesus is a redeemer. He's a redeemer. So that means he takes junky things and he turns them into something glorious. So all of your weakness, all of the very things about you that make you a poor Christian or a bad human being or a really poor citizen, those are not just shameful things. Those are opportunities for redemption. Those are the things that Jesus wants to take and turn them into glory. So how do we shape our ministry in this world? How do we be vessels that promote and witness to an appealing gospel? By just being us. Verse six of chapter four, as I said, Paul refers to the gospel as a light. And referring to this chapter, many people have drawn this imagery that says, if you have a light inside a clay vessel, when the clay vessel cracks, all that does is let out beams through the cracks. Only the weak need apply. That's me, that's all of us. So I think, I think what we need to do amongst people who are not believers is not portray this high tower, but portray this shattered, brittle, earthen vessel and say that there's something greater working in us. 
I think that amongst Christians, because we're all struggling in some sort of ways, we need to give each other the, the grace of telling each other how we're struggling, how we're failing. And this, this is me standing before you guys. And I'll tell you that as, as the years have gone on in my life, I've only gotten more and more titles that I do not deserve. When I was a student in elementary school, I couldn't uphold that responsibility. And then eventually I started dating a good, good girl. Eventually I got married and adopted this title as a husband. Just a little time later, I adopted this title as a father. And now, by God's grace, I'm here adopting the title as servant of Calvary the Hill. I don't deserve any of those things. And I fall short on all of them. And the greatest service that I could do to my wife, to my children, and to you, the church that I desperately love, is just to be honest and tell you guys who I am. I'm a guy who struggled with obesity for over 20 years. I'm a guy who had to step down from ministry and break up with the girl of his dreams because I was addicted to a horrible, egregious sin. I'm a guy that even some, some of the most recent days, I talk to God and say, you know, like, are, are you even there, Lord? And yet, I still rally. Even in my weakness, there's this dissonance between resilience that's within me because the Holy Spirit dwells within me. The salvation, the gospel is much mightier than I am and it should look different to you guys. The gospel that I proclaim and how weak I am as a person and I want you guys to know that because I love you, because I want you to be able to see beyond me into the gospel that's within me, I want you guys to know exactly how weak I am. I have nothing to offer this church except for give you a peek of what dwells within me which is the satisfaction, the peace, and the glory that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to finish, I want to finish with a word for anybody in here who is maybe still on the fence with with Jesus. Set aside the word Christianity. We're not preaching Christianity here, we're preaching Jesus himself. If you're not a Christian today, you feel that contradiction between the flicker within you that wants to be something great and how flawed your performances are. The Bible says the reason we can never we can never successfully satisfy that flicker, that assignment that God gave us, is because when we sin, we stop putting God as the image in our lives and we put ourselves on his throne and when we try to overperform really all we're trying to do is to testify to ourselves to let people see us for how great and wonderful and mighty we are but just like i don't deserve the title of a husband father or servant of this church none of us can uphold this title of being god and we will always 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 tragically fail our assignment when we try to be the God in our own lives. All Jesus wants from you, all Jesus wants from any of us is our weaknesses, our shames, and our very mortality, the thing about us that we just cannot help or change, and he wants to change it. He wants to turn it into resurrection life. Jesus died on the cross to take the death that he didn't deserve that belonged to us that he may give to us the resurrection that we don't deserve that belonged to him. 
he got in the same boat with us and showed us the way out. So church, be broken vessels. Non-Christians, be broken vessels. Just, just allow God to, to shine the light of the gospel into your heart. Allow God to have that dwelling within you so that way beams can peek out through the cracks. Let's pray. <sighs> Jesus, I'm so thankful that the goodness of the Holy Spirit dwells within me because I can't live up to any of these things that deep down inside me I want to live up to. And I just pray that we would, we would be like Paul who would take his weaknesses, his very dying, and put them on display for everybody to see to like an epiphany procession to try to impress the onlookers and say this is what dwells inside and like, like the Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving offering welcoming our brothers and sisters and friends to come join us to celebrate the redemption that God has freely given us. Lord, we all have an abundance of weakness and failures and we cannot repurpose them as stepping stones towards success. But you can redeem them from death to resurrection, to eternal life. We need you, Jesus. Your word says that whoever calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. And I just pray that even if we've already done that, even if we've been walking with you, Lord, for decades, that as we go into this worship time, that we will call upon the name of Jesus to save us from our weakness and even our very mortality. As communion is up here available for those who know Jesus as Lord, we pray that we would partake of communion and say, yeah, I'm signing up for that. I'm giving Jesus all of my weaknesses and the very mortality, the things about me I cannot change to testify of the majesty that is the saving gospel of eternal life. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation for somebody in this room that doesn't yet know you and is still on the fence about you. And honestly, no wonder, because the church is just a room full of shattered, broken vessels. And when we try to appeal to people to join the club, it's really not that appealing. But there's a, there's a light inside the hearts of those who know you that have, has been graciously given. And I pray that that light would shine through the cracks but that we, that we would let you, God, um, testify to the majesty that is the God that we serve. In Jesus' name.